Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'll be interviewing Nasia Sirincioni Ulezi about her paper, Black Women and Barriers to Leadership in ABA. Nasia is a board certified behavior analyst with a doctorate degree in education from Loyola University of Chicago. She holds a master's degree in special education from the University of Illinois at Chicago and a master's degree in educational leadership from the American College of Education. She is a graduate of the Infant Studies Specialist Program at the Erickson Institute of Chicago. In addition to her BCBA credential, she is an Illinois licensed special education teacher and an Illinois early intervention provider and a state evaluator. Professionally, she has served as a special educator, clinician, educational administrator, and professor of special education. Her clinical experience spans infancy through adulthood. Currently, she is the CEO and founder of Ulezi LLC, co-founder of Pivot to Inclusion, and serves as a court-appointed special advocate for children in the Illinois foster care system. She is also on the advisory board for Black Applied Behavior Analyst and a board member on the Illinois Association for Behavior Analysis. She has assisted school districts in the state of Illinois in developing meaningful educational programs to meet the needs of students with autism. Her research interests include supervision, mentoring, leadership, and culturally humble practice within the field of ABA. She's a champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is deeply committed to using her skills and experiences, paired with the science of applied behavior analysis, to empower the lives of people she supports and serves in a positive and meaningful way. Her paper, Black Women and Barriers to Leadership in ABA, was published in Behavior Analysis and Practice as part of a special section focused on diversity and inclusion. The paper dives into barriers the black women face and recommendations on how to address some of those issues. It's an important paper and a really important topic. So without further ado, here is my interview with Nasia Sirincioni Ulezi. Hi, Dr. Ulezi. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. We're excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morris. I am beyond thrilled to be here and to have an opportunity to share my most recent publication. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. 
Thank you. And we're really, really excited about the article you published and to dive into it. Before we, we go there, we do like to hear a little bit about the author and some of the things you're up to right now. So would you mind sharing with us? Absolutely. Uh, so I hail out of Illinois. Uh, I live about 30 miles southwest of Chicago in a suburb called Bolingbrook. I have lived in Illinois all of my life. Um, I work right now as a contractual behavior analyst for a larger agency. Aside from that, I have two businesses. One of them is called Pivot to Inclusion. I'm the co-founder with uh, another co-founder, Dr. Scott Herbst. And that business in particular um, addresses diversity, equity, and inclusion with organizations. Wow. Um, I also have an LLC that works with families of young children who are on the autism spectrum. And I, right now, I'm doing a lot of assessments. Um, I am incredibly involved in my own ABAI state organization here in Illinois. So I sit on the board for that organization. I also sit on the advisory board for Black Applied Behavior Analysts. And I'm doing some work right now on ABAI's affiliate chapters board as a board member. So I am very busy working within the behavior analytic community. And I can tell you, I am enjoying every minute of it, Dr. Morris, every minute of it. And, and, and might I add this too, because I think it's important. I'm one of the old timers in the field. So I have practiced for, this, this is my 31st year. Wow. I actually remember I was uh, in my doctoral program and my supervisor at the time came to me, this was back in the nineties. And she said, uh, my program supervisor said, you know, Nasia, we have this, this new credential that's out. Um, you can get it. It's called the BCBA. And I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm working on my doctorate. What do I need this <laughs> BCBA for? Yeah. And I said, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll finish my doctorate in education. I don't need the BCBA, a certificate. I am. I have already have a master's a, I'm finishing up a doctorate. I'm good. Little did I know, Dr. Morris, this credential would be the thing to get. Mm. So I didn't get credentials as a BCBA until later in my career. Okay. Actually very recently, but I have been in the field actively in a variety of positions for, like I said, this is my 31st year. And some, some major contributions when you're speaking about your service that you're currently providing. My question was, how, where in the world do you find time to sleep or rest? <laughs> well, I will tell you, this is my work. Um, it's, these are my values, uh, mm. Dr. Morris. These are things that I deeply value. So my values and my actions are incredibly aligned. Mm. This is work that I'm deeply passionate about, not just something I'm out here doing. I'm deeply passionate about making a difference in the field. And what I found is as I've gotten older and matured in the field, my personal connection 
to this field has grown. Let me tell you, I have a 22 year old son and he is finishing up his degree in special education. It is likely he will go on for his master's degree in applied behavior analysis. So what I'm doing right now, Dr. Morris, I'm, I'm trying to leave a legacy. I am trying to set the occasion for him to step into this field and contact reinforcement. Wow. And again, being a more mature person in the field and in Illinois, I have a ton of newly minted and aspiring BCBAs who are looking to me for leadership and guidance. And I take that very seriously. Well, in your paper, you use that sort of opportunity or the experience you have in leadership to reflect, I think, partly on the field and the change in the field you've seen, and I think a push for where the field needs to go. And so should we segue into this particular paper, maybe describe the overview of it, and maybe even throw in there why you wrote this paper? Why is this important to you? Oh, yes, I would love to do that, Dr. Morris. Okay, let, let's start with the title of the paper, Black Women and Barriers to Leadership in ABA. So again, let me go back to the fact that I have worked in the field in a variety of positions for 31 years. That's a long time. To be quite honest, that's a longer time than many people have been on the planet in our field. <laughs> Right. So it's a long time. And what I saw is initially when I started doing the work, you know, I was alone as a Black woman most of the time. Mm. And over the years, especially I would say in the last six to seven years, what I've seen is an increase in the number of Black women that I see. There's definitely an increase. But what I don't see are these same Black women in positions of leadership, mm. the heads of departments for ABA programs, clinical directors. Right. I wasn't seeing that at a number that I believe would be sufficient. You know, so I began to do my own reflection as to why I wasn't able to really move so effortlessly through our field and rise to the ranks of leadership. Mm. And my reflection, by and large, has to do with the fact that I'm good at what I do. I have an excellent reputation in the field. My work is good. So I, again, I took a critical look and why? So I started asking the women around me, the Black women around me, what their experiences were in the field. And surprisingly, their experiences, Dr. Morris, mirrored mine. Mm -hmm. You know, as I listened to them speak and inform the work of this paper, I was listening to myself. And I wanna share some of the things that came up during the course of my conversations with, with these wonderful, wonderful professional black women in our field. Such an important topic. So very critical to the practice of behavior analysis, which of course is why it's in the journal of behavior analysis and practice. And a, and a very important topic to tr try to 
breakdown in the areas that you describe in the paper. It, it wasn't it wasn't simply bringing up the the topic sort of abstractly. You're diving into specific experiences yes. that Black women are likely experiencing within the field of behavior analysis. We're not talking about what's happening in other employment areas. This is in our backyards. Yes. These are things that people in our field, Black women in our field, are experiencing and, and there are things that we can do something about. Yes, absolutely. It, and so absolutely. I loved in your in the introduction of this paper, you talked about uh, how you ended up interviewing five black colleagues, black women colleagues, and you sort of point out, yeah, there's not a whole lot of research on this. And in some ways we can we can sort of fall back on that. Yeah, we can't really talk about uh, this particular subject because there's not really research to back up any of these assertions, which is a, a problem for so many, uh, at so many levels and ultimately preventing this, this very critical, crucial conversation that, that we need to have as a field. And so thank you so much yes. for writing this and, and breaking down the issue in the way that you do. And so would you mind telling us some of the, the important factors that you sort of identified within the paper. I sure can, and thank you for asking. Let me preface what I'm about to say. I think this is important, that we as Black women show up in the field not as a monolith. Hmm. So I do not want to give the impression that this is what, this is the experience that every Black woman will contact. No, we, we show up as Black women with different experiences, different perspectives. This has been my experience, and I'm in contact with many other Black women, and these are the experiences of the Black women who have shared with me. So I just want to preface what I'm about to say with that. Now, in light of that, there were some, some themes that came up. Um, one of them, and it's actually the, the first one that I talk about, is this idea of onlyness, being the only one. Now, within the field, uh, we don't have a lot of racial diversity. Right. So what that means for Black women and Black men, too, to be quite honest, is that on your, your job, whether it's a clinic in higher ed, you will likely find yourself in the position of being the only one. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Morris, let me tell you what happens often when people are in that position, specifically in our field. I have found, and the women that I interviewed found, that it creates a paradox a paradox of being visible, hyper-visible. Mm. You're the only one, everybody sees you and invisible at the same time. Wow. It can be incredibly stressful. So this is what I'll say, those conditions, those conditions may not change anytime soon. We saw that the BACB did put out some demographic data. And yeah. we see that people of color in general are overall underrepresented in our field. So these conditions that I'm speaking to that create onlyness and this 
paradox of hypervisibility and invisibility are not likely to change. But in my paper, I talk about some things that we do have control over, mm. like that supervisor-supervisee relationship mm. and making sure that if you have Black women supervisees, that conditions are created to where they're supported and that hypervisibility and invisibility stance is mitigated. Mm. Those are things that we have control over. Another thing I brought up in the paper, and this has been my experience, I'll speak to myself here. Uh, because of this paradox, I would often show up in my workplace experience, not really feeling comfortable being vulnerable with my supervisor. And what do I mean by that, Dr. Morris? I wouldn't always disclose what my weaknesses are. I wouldn't always disclose what needed to be worked on because in my mind, I would be perceived as less than, mm. not being able to do the job. So what we can take with that data that myself and, and other Black women BCBAs have shared is that in our supervision, we need to make sure we're making space for vulnerability. Mm. And, and, and one of the things I talk about a lot in my work is bi-directionality. So not just making space for me as the supervisee to be vulnerable, but make showing as a supervisor that I now I've assumed that role, I also demonstrate that I can be vulnerable and then it opens up the space. You know, there's a sentiment in our field that all the knowledge comes from kind of one place. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah. And what I am calling us to do is reflect on that and really develop that sense of bi-directionality. You know, somebody asked me the other day, they said, well, Nasia, are you suggesting that our front lines and our supervisees should be making the decisions? Well, no, not necessarily. What I'm saying is that our front lines and our supervisees should be informing some of the decisions we make. Right. That there should be room made to hear, listen to all sides and all perspectives. Right. And it has been my experience that that hasn't happened and it hasn't served me well as a professional. And then because it hasn't served me well, it hasn't served the people that I support well. Wow. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what you see in terms of not only needing to be vulnerable, but to dive into some of the ongoing higher yes. level mentor and, and sponsorship. Oh, yes. And again, thank you for asking about this one. Let me, let me answer by first saying it needs to be said in our field. Understand supervision is the gateway to success. Right. It is effective, effective supervision is the gateway to success in this field. You know, so many of the women that I talked to talked about, you know, they're getting their supervision, they were getting their supervision hours and they just 
picked any old supervisor who could accommodate their work schedule. And no, 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 no. That we we can't do that because those when we set can when we create conditions like that for supervision, we're not gonna get the outcomes we need to set the occasion for success. Absolutely. So I really in that section of the paper, really am getting at we need to revisit how people are choosing supervisors, mm-hmm. who's agreeing to be a supervisor, because that supervisory relationship is the foundation. That experience is the foundation of how of setting you up to really experience success. And then I talk about mentorship. Mentorship has been of value to me in my career. And you yourself, Dr. Morris, I, I believe it, if you thought about it, you can think of many people who served as someone in your life who could just give you more information in the field, served as a sounding board, that person who could point you in the right direction. Most of us through the course of our career, we have many mentors. Mm-hmm. Those relationships are powerful. They are very valuable. Right. Those are experiences and relationships that many of our, myself included, Black practitioners don't always have readily available access to. Mm. Oftentimes, the lives of the people who would serve as mentors don't intersect with our lives. Mm. Those mentorships, relationships, you know, are often created Outside of work hours, Dr. Morris. Right. You know, outside of it. So I'm not saying that you can't have powerful mentors um, in a cross uh, cultural, across racial diet. You absolutely can. What I'm saying is we need to make sure that we are supporting Black and other BIPOCs in acquiring and having access to mentors who who can relate to them, who can support them, who have things in common. It is important. Now, with that mentorship relationship, the hope is that mentorship will lead to something called sponsorship. Hmm. There's a difference. People often use the terms interchangeably, but they're not the same. Right. So whereas a mentor is kind of showing you the ropes, the sponsor, that person is going to, to really give you their network. Mm. They're going to advocate for you when you're not in the room. They're going to help you level up. There is a difference. But the thing with the sponsor relationship, people don't just show up ready to sponsor you. You have to be in a position to offer your sponsor something. Mm. So if you haven't been properly supervised and you haven't had access to mentors, you will not be ready for a sponsor. Mm. And again, sponsorship is developed in terms of not months, this is years. Now think about, think about for a minute, Dr. Morris, who has been elevated in our field? And you can trace, it's almost like tracing lineage. 
you can see how they moved up the ranks. Right. You remember, okay, well, when they were a graduate student, yeah, they were working in this person's lab. And then this person had them, you know, doing some presentations. And then this person mentored them so they could do presentations. And, and then they, they leveled up. And before you know it, that person has matriculated and rose in the ranks within our field. Right. That process is not happening. It didn't happen for me as a Black woman. Now, right. recently, as the world has disrupted around race, and, and mind you, this work is something I've been doing uh, my, my entire career, Dr. Morris. This is not new to me. Wow. But people are becoming present to what it is I have to offer. It shouldn't have taken that long. Right. And it shouldn't have taken what it took either. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now absolutely. You're, you're, you're really beginning to identify some some things that you we would almost overlook in terms of its effect on uh, black women in behavior analysis, other minorities, something as simple as a supervision dynamic, right? That if we just look at the BACB standards, it's like, yeah, I meet with them the once or twice a week. I check the boxes. I make sure they're getting good clinical skills. And you're saying, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's a much more important process and requires much more intention Yes. and uh, targeting of, of specific dynamics, like, the, like you were saying, the bi-directional, bi-directional vulnerability, yes. uh, probably across any and all supervisees, but particularly with those Black women and I'm sure other minorities. And it's through these little oversights that you can really create a extremely compounded problem. And I want to read a specific quote from your paper, which I don't do on this podcast. I really don't love publicly <laughs> reading, but I just love this statement. And I think it relates to what we're, we're speaking about right now. So bear with me here. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is again, uh, your words. Some may argue that black women are not pursuing presented and available leadership opportunities within the field of ABA but that point of view may be overly selective. Mm -hmm. Black women may be reluctant to pursue leadership roles in organizations that do not have a demonstrated history of hiring and effectively supporting black women. This idea that black women aren't, aren't the ones, the the otis of responsibility is on black women and they should be the one relentlessly pursuing these things. It's a lot more complicated than that. And we go back to that supervision dynamic. Are they being mentored and and told about these opportunities? Are they being sort of pushed and given the network to really optimize or or make possible uh, being able to obtain those types of opportunities? It it, it starts with something to me so simple with with a supervision dynamic, but it has these extreme, extreme consequences when you look at the lifespan of of somebody's career. Yes, the lifespan of somebody's career, which I've lived it. Hmm. I have lived it. Let me me talk to you a little bit about where that section of the paper came in, because that was directly from my lived experience. Over the years, you know, there have been positions to where I could have moved forward with, But I had to really think, you know, my history with this organization has shown me that 
people that look like me don't get support. Mm. They don't get the support they need. My history demonstrated to me that when Black women or BIPOCs show up and they're vocal and they're engaging in dialogue other than with a smile on their face, they get punished. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, they're perceived as a problem. So in my lived experience, I have found that sometimes, or at least for me, I would make it to a point where a position would, would come open and I would say, no way, hmm. no way. I am, I won't be supported. I won't, I won't be set up for success. Hmm. You know, again, leadership and leadership roles. And I also, I think I need to speak to this. When I speak of leadership, understand that I have always been a leader in the field. A title in a position doesn't make us a leader. So I, I need, right. as we're talking about leadership, I just want to make sure I say that. Yeah. Um, when I'm speaking in terms of this paper, I'm talking about kind of roles of leadership, but I have always been a leader and I haven't always pursued these roles because I've, I watch organizations and how they treated me and others as supervisees. Mm. And if they don't have a demonstrated history of showing support, of sh demonstrating vulnerability in bi-directional ways, then logically I've said, no, you know, our leaders need support. Right. It wouldn't serve me well to step into a leadership role where I knew I wouldn't be supported. And that you would ultimately experience, going back to one of the sections of paper we, we haven't fully hit on, the, the stereotypes and implicit bias, yes. biases that Black women are going to be experiencing in workplaces. And so yes. can we talk about how that also relates to, to this topic? Absolutely. And I know we're running out of time, so I will kind of zero in on one particular stereotype that I myself, I've experienced. It is the angry black woman. Mm -hmm. If I were to identify any one stereotype that has shaped my behavior more, that has caused more damage, it will be that stereotype. Mm -hmm. The stereotype of a black woman being angry. Let me tell you this, Dr. Morris, this is how it often shows up in the workplace. And I, can, I, can, I could, beyond who I interviewed in this paper, could name at least two dozen women, Black women, who've had the experience of being in the workplace and being told, you know, you're really, you're not a team player. Mm. You're, you're standoffish. You know, you, you, you're, you're hostile. If I had a dollar for every time that was told to a black woman, I would be a very wealthy woman. Yeah. So there appears to be very little understanding of 
kind of one's own implicit bias in the perception of black women as angry and hostile. Now, I, I have been very vocal in the past year of saying how myself, me, how I've been complicit in maintaining some of this very damaging narrative. One of the things that I did, Dr. Morris, in the workplace is I didn't speak up. Mm. I didn't. I didn't speak up because I feared being punished, being retaliated against. Mm. And what that did was when I when I finally did show up and I showed up more authentically, that's what people tacked it. They're like, oh, you're you're angry. You're aggressive. Mm. What are you talking about? So my my MO in the field was to kind of show up with a smile on my face to avoid making people angry, to keep people comfortable, because that's what kept me in my position, Dr. Morris. Right. And I talk in the paper about these moments where we myself as a black woman have to decide, you know, should I say something or, or should I keep quiet? Cause if I say something, I know they're going to say I'm angry. Mm. That is real. And one of the women that I interviewed, she described it as a slow drip, mm. a slow it, drip. It, 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 uh, grades on you. If you are contacting that experience daily, over decades, it's not healthy. Now I have grown and evolved. I no longer show up in that way. I'm far more aligned and authentic with what my values are. But for years, I kept quiet. And let me let me share this on a personal note. The when I did decide to speak up, that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> the person that I talked to said, "Well, I don't believe you." Wow. This was a, a supervisor said, "I don't believe you, Nasia." So again, yeah, I shared an experience of my experience of this, this particular workplace, what was happening. Um, I had contacted some experiences of racism and I was told, I don't, I don't believe you. Wow. So I think as, as a field, we need to really take a look at developing healthy repertoires, effective repertoires around supervision, around bi-directional thinking Mm. to set the occasion for more more opportunities and more inclusivity. And for a behavior analysis that works for everyone. Absolutely. When you were speaking earlier about the 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 drain the energy drain that the black women experience by having to basically walk on eggshells or feel like mm-hmm. they're walking on eggshells in their career is that what you refer to in the paper paper as racial battle fatigue racial battle fatigue which was a, a term coined years ago um it is this idea of this is tiring dr morris mm-hmm. This is tiring. Just having to show up and watch what you say, watch what you do. You have to be this uh, way in one environment, this way in another environment. And this is the kicker. 
I engaged in that behavior because my workplace was tied to my survival. Mm. So if I didn't engage in this, oh, I better be quiet or think about what I say, I could lose, I could have lost my employment. Mm. I've seen this happen. You know, in OBM, which right now I am, I think I should say this, I'm working on a second doctorate degree. Wow. In industrial and organizational psychology. And I'm working on it because I want to be a contributor to the field. There's such a focus in OBM about physical safety. What mm. I want to tell you is there is some damage being done with regard to emotional and psychological safety. Right. There is some rampant damage being done. And I want to be somebody in our field who's addressing that in a meaningful way regarding helping supervisors and organizations acquire the repertoires they need to advance practices of cultural humility, hmm. practices that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, Dr. Leslie, this, this paper is a step uh, in that direction. And in the paper, you've done a, a beautiful job of outlining insidious systems and, and interactions that, again, you see grind away at people. Our job, behavior analysts have a, a tough job, period. It's a lot of energy goes into to delivering behavior analytic services. Yes. So you add on to that, you superimpose on that for black women, all of these other completely unnecessary stressors that potentially could be at least partly alleviated by a supportive workplace that is uh, addressing these issues. And so yes. in your paper, you begin to outline some of the practices that are really necessary. Could, could you speak to some of those? I can. What I wanna say is it's gonna require our governing bodies and our professional organizations to really get some skin in the game. Mm. Because we, we have to change the way we do things fundamentally. Right. One of the things I offer in the paper, and it is because I come to the field with some additional training. My first professional identity is as a special education teacher. So as a special educator, one of the practices that I learned was to engage in ongoing reflective practice. Mm. I am working diligently to bring this practice more fully into our field. Now I say it because we as behavior analysts tend to be very outwardly focused, mm. but when it comes to work of addressing bias, addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion, it requires us, and that really is the, the first step it requires us to get reflective. Mm. So one of the ways I see that happening, you know, I'm doing a lot of training with organizations, um, with, with, with a lot of people in our field, but I, I really do believe that our institutions of higher ed who have these programs need to start reaching out to other fields. Mm. Other fields who are doing this work other fields that are more diverse and have a history of supporting Black women and other BIPOCs, right. we need to expand our knowledge base, expand who it is that we're talking to, expand 
our understanding of really what behavior analysis is. And again, reflective practice. It's not something that we hear a lot about in our field, but within the educational community, they're doing it a lot and they have been for years. And so that's, that's one piece. Now I did, because this, this particular article, I started work on a few years back. And at the time the BACB was not taking the demographic, demographic data. And that's one of the recommend, recommendations that I did make. Mm -hmm. uh, they are doing that now. I suggest we continue to reflect on it and review it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, as a field, I want us all to get very present to and reflect upon who we are elevating, whose work we are elevating and why. You know, I'm gonna jump ahead just a little bit to share a resource. Mm -hmm. And it's a resource that really just entered my life. Uh, Alan Nuringer's work, Dr. Alan Nuringer, he wrote a paper way back in 19, it was either 1990 or 1991. It's called Humble Behaviorism. And in that paper, it was a, wonder, a wonderful quote, if I can find it. Um, no, I don't think I have it. I thought I had it in my notes, but he had this, yes, I do. He had a wonderful quote. And he said in that paper, if behaviorists were more humble, their effectiveness as scientists would increase. Mm. Now, Dr. Morris, this article has been around since 1991. Right. And I'm an old timer in the field. I have never read it. Wow. I just was, I was introduced with it after a conversation with uh, my colleague, Dr. Gordon Borland. I was sharing what I was doing in my work. And he said, yeah, it sounds like what, what Dr. Alan Nuringer did uh, 30 years ago on uh, humble behaviorism. So I asked us to reflect, why isn't this article a part of our required reading? Hmm. Because everything that I'm, I'm saying now, and I'm walking around here like I've invented the term cultural <laughs> humility, this, this, this man, this professional, was saying it 30 some years ago. So I think there's some value in us really getting present to what work gets promoted. Right. What, who gets listened to? Why do people listen? Those are things we have to change. I'm again, very appreciative of this platform and you in the organization amplifying my message hmm. i appreciate that it's a incredibly important message and incredibly insightful with the with the article you referenced the the humble behaviorist or the humble behaviorism what steps do we need to take with with, with the publications that are now like you said related to stuff that's been published for 30 years now how do we take that next step forward we're talking about it what, what, do, what do we do next we need to now in this article i have tacked some of the barriers we need to really get present to the barriers and start addressing them in a systemic way hmm. so with supervision if bipoc people 
if black women and other BIPOCs are not able to contact effective supervision experiences, then as a field, what we need to do is identify those barriers and systemically address them. One of the major barriers is money. It is incredibly expensive to obtain those hours. Mm. What is the funding available to help people obtain effective supervision? It really is the bedrock of our field, but a lot of people, particularly Black women, are not able to access it. You know, work and getting, amplifying people's voices. What are the barriers to being published? Do we have sufficient supports in place for people who have messages to contact mentors who can help guide them through that publication process? Publication in our field is rigorous. Right. You need, you, you don't just get to publish. It is a skill set. It is a repertoire of skills that has to be developed. Do we have mentors available? Do we have people with their pulse on and connections and contacts with marginalized people within the field who need voices amplified? We got to, as a field, redirect our efforts. Mm. We need more, more of that. And, and to, to his credit, you know, that I know Dr. Jonathan Tarbox is no longer the editor of the Behavior Analysis and Practice Journal. To his credit, that is what he did. Mm -hmm. You know, Jonathan is always reaching out, you know, identifying whose voice needs to be shared, who need, whose voice needs to be amplified. We need more of that at a systemic level. If we don't see articles coming in written by BIPOCs, why? What's the disconnect? Let's put something in place at a systemic level to address it. Right. And that sort of gets into the, the you know, I, I have read the Humble Behavior Analysis article. It's been a while, but the, I think the concept being that we, we fundamentally understand we don't know everything. And through that belief, looking at other perspectives are not only important and helpful, but they're essential to the fabric of our field. And if yes. we're not tapping into uh, making sure that we have representation, that, that, that we're hearing voices that otherwise are, are quieted because of the, the sort of systemic barriers that are in place, that we're missing and absolutely essential ingredient to a healthy practice. And I love that you brought up, this stuff isn't new. There are other <laughs> fields that yes. are doing pretty well in this, this area. What are they doing? Because that's stuff that should really be easily translated into behavior analytic practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, before we have to end, there is an, in addition to Dr. Neuringer's article, I want to share another resource, mm. another valuable resource that I have found helpful. Uh, doctors Linda LeBlanc, Tyra Sellers, and Dr. Shala Leahy put out a fantastic piece of work, a fantastic piece of work that really addresses some of what I have been speaking to. It's called, I believe, yes, Supervisor and Mentor. Building, 
The full title is Building and Sustaining Meaningful and Effective Relationships as a Supervisor and Mentor. And in this book, they talk about the centrality of relationships. They talk about bidirectionality. Mm. Very powerful. And, and, and no, they're, they're not like paying me to endorse <laughs> it, but this is a tool that I am using in the field right now. And it's very powerful. I also will say my organization, Pivot to Inclusion, is doing some outstanding work with other organizations and helping them to acquire that bi-directional thinking that will promote their efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I do a lot of work. I'm on the advisory board for Black Applied Behavior Analysts. Another organization that does monthly education. I will be presenting in two weeks on humble behavioralism and cultural humility with Baba. So awesome. th those are the those are some outstanding resources. Please, if you're serious about really moving our field in a direction where it works for everyone, because what I do know, Dr. Morris. And why I'm so passionate is because I know the power of our science. Mm. I know the power of it. And I want everybody, I want to be able to disseminate our science in a way that people can receive it and embrace it and love it. Mm. That's not happening now. Right. And I think we can change it. Absolutely. Your message is incredibly important, incredibly powerful. We, we will link to the, the article you referenced, the, the book you referenced. We'll link to your website for the Pivot to Inclusion, to BABA's information as well. Is there anything else that the listeners should check out that we can link to? You know, no, not right off the top of my head. And again, I just want to thank everyone for listening. I wanna thank you and your team for this amazing opportunity for me to share my message and share my work. And I hope it's not the last time I'm on. I certainly hope not either. Dr. Ulezi, thank you so much for everything you do in the field. Thank you for this paper. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to discuss awesome. it. Thank you so much, Dr. Morris, for this amazing interview and time to share my work. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find and follow us on social media to suggest papers that we should check out on this show that have been published in Behavior Analysis and Practice and send us questions you have for the authors. Finally, thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Narvaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin and Sarah Aguiar. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. I'm Cody Morris. <laughs>